Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Brian Scanlon joins us from Ireland. Brian is currently a principal systems engineer at Intercom. Brian Scanlon, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Uh, so what seems like a decade ago, like way back in 2019, uh, I gave a few talks about how Intercom improved on-call for out-of-hours. And so we took a setup that was pretty fragmented and uneven in terms of the on-call burden across teams. Like it really depended if you were on a team working on lots of data stores or lots of customer facing stuff. And we we weren't satisfied with this. The burden of on-call was too much and it was uneven across the organization. And so we ended up deciding to move to a volunteer-led virtual team with like good processes and practices to ensure things like alarms are meaningful and high quality and we had followed up on alarms when they fired and stuff. Uh, and so I started giving a few talks about this topic and wrote a blog post and uh, generally evangelizing this stuff. And when I started speaking to folks from different companies about implementing this type of on-call, it became pretty obvious that it was very difficult to run roll this out in many environments and that I had kind of not appreciated a bunch of the stuff that was in Intercom that had kind of made it, this type of setup possible. You know, other different, different environments have uh, approaches to infrastructure management or how teams build their stuff or maybe even compliance requirements uh, that we just didn't have at Intercom. And so I wasn't really aware of these when I was um, suggesting to people to copy and paste our, our on-call process. And I didn't see what unlocked this shared approach was how we build and use software in Intercom, um, namely our majestic Ruby on Rails monolith. <laughs> um, and so effectively, we uh, we apply a pretty conservative approach to, to building software. Like we're a values-led company and we have in place a bunch of principles that we use to help uh, build our software. The, uh, the thing about our approach to building product uh, unlocked uh, the ability to be able to go on call for any part of it because it pretty much all looks the same no matter which feature you're supporting as an engineer uh, you can go on call uh, for our front end component or for our messenger or for um, even some new features that we built uh, and it all looks the same it's a Ruby on Rails app talking to a bunch of AWS services and we use a bunch of asynchronous queues here and there and it's got like the most common cases of breakage where we've got some some database problem or so, some uh, you know newly introduced bug or something like that it's kind of the process of figuring out what went wrong and where kind of uh, is was made easy by it being pretty consistent across uh, all parts of intercom and so I think this is this just doesn't make on call easy it also makes the decisions of how to build and what way we're going to build stuff relatively easy and allows for a lot of fluidity between teams as well. So when it comes to like looking at our organizational structure and moving people around due to wanting to reshape teams or reprioritize a work, it all gets unlocked due to like this software pattern which comes out of our values, but then you get all these nice kind of consequences of that. And so when you uh, when we're thinking about what, how do we build maintainable and sustainable stuff in Intercom? It's like a, a real core component of it. It's really interesting. You, you touched on a few things there, kind of more of a volunteer-based approach. Uh, so is that like weekends and evening type of support when something goes off? Like, what does that look like right now? When, when it's a, is it volunteer to like be on call, or is it when something happens, you hope someone volunteers to deal with it? <laughs> so. We need to do 24-7 on-call. Like We have pay, a lot of paying uh, customers uh, and they expect it to come to be uh, generally available a lot of the time. So uh, there is a 24 by 7 on-call aspect of keeping our business online. And teams kind of did were on-call for their own stuff. You know, we have a strong ownership culture at Intercom. And so... And the def that was the default way we were building out our teams and 
kind of the default way we built out uh, on-call for, for teams was, you know, you go on-call for your stuff and you figure out your rotation between your teams and one person has the pager 24 by 7 for your stuff. Um, but when we zoomed out a little, the burden of on-call, I mentioned already, was not was kind of unevenly distributed across teams. And this is kind of a barrier to, like, being able to move people around teams, like, just because you happen to be an engineer that ends up on one team rather than another, suddenly you've got this uh, busy on-call schedule <laughs> uh, and, and other folks don't. And also, my background is in systems administration, and uh, I've certainly... Uh, had a lot of bad on-call experiences uh, and kind of didn't want to copy this over to Intercom and wanted to make on-call a thing that is like positive to people's careers, um, gives people the opportunity to kind of opt in or opt out depending uh, on what role or depending on your circumstances. And it's not specific to the precise job that you happen to be doing that week at Intercom. Uh, the, the, the goal of the on-call thing was to collapse all out of hours on call into this one team. So one person will be on call with good escalation and documentation and all this kind of stuff to support that person who's on call. But they can they volunteer and are it's open to any engineer on any team. And uh, so we got rid of effectively most the vast majority of teams having to have their own 24-7 on call. Um, and the, the way this is uh, done is we incentivize it through, not just through recognition and, uh, you know, we compensate it with a static amount, regardless of whether you get paged or not. Um, but we also give good support. Like I, I mentioned that we do good follow up on alarms. We we uh, require all teams to write run books and uh, we do regular reviews pretty much on a monthly level of any page that goes off in the middle of the night. Uh, and so this has been a su- sustainable way to keep on-call working well, that it's not noisy. Average pages were probably in the order of like 10 to 20 a month out of hours, which isn't too bad. It means that you do a shift and you're going to get a handful of pages, hopefully not at three in the morning. <laughs> uh, yeah. And th- then uh, th- one of the things that we do, though, is that on- teams are on-call for their own stuff during office hours. Um, and, you know, that's when most stuff breaks. <laughs> it's, it's when when people are making changes to things, when uh, we're deploying code. You know, that is when most of the noise is. It also just happens that, like, we're a B2B uh, company. And so the the ramp up of traffic every single day and the kind of plateau. And then uh, we're on the way, traffic's on the way back down when in when in Dublin and London we are leaving the office. So it, it mostly overlaps with the busiest time, busiest times of the day when teams are on call for their own stuff anyway and it's usually a good bit quieter uh, in terms of pages and things breaking uh, out of those kind of office hours when there's less changes going through the system um, you know the thing you mentioned there was related to just not a like creating a culture where you follow up on every alarm um, and i know how easy it can be for development teams that are maybe feeling a little under resourced or under pressure to keep pushing on some stuff and like wow you start making decisions of like something comes in and you're like well seems like the app's up and running. We can look into that later. It's like a disk space thing. I don't know. And then someone, hopefully someone deals with that at some point. What what sort of steps did you take as a team? You know, you implemented this kind of uh, improved your on-calling experience or on-call experience for, for your staff. But how did you kind of help establish those values there that we're going to follow up on every single one of them? And, and what does that look like when like the escalation process is everything get documented every single alarm or kind of like on a case-by-case basis when that person decides it's important enough to capture some notes for future reference. Sure. So there's a great quote we like to use from charity majors, which is, treat every alarm like a heart attack. <laughs> there's another phrase that we use as well that we apply not just to paging alarms, but non-paging alarms, um, which is we have, we, have, we have zero tolerance operations. And so by this, it means we don't tolerate noisy alarms. So very much from this very start of the shared on-call setup, uh, we we defined standards for alarms. They needed to be actionable. They needed to represent real customer pain or inevitable customer pain. So, you know, if we lost a primary on a database or we were down to uh, non-redundant on something that was very important, that's clearly something you need to take action on. So we defined what a good alarm looks like, which is that um, it's it goes off infrequently, it requires human intervention, and it does mean that something's gone terribly wrong for um, that's customer-facing or very likely to. Uh, we also coincidentally use this uh, as a 
use the process of importing alarms into this team. Uh, so we use Terraform um, to manage our alarms in uh, def- they're defining a, a mix of CloudFront and Datadog. And just this process of having to import and do a little bit of work and having um, working with teams to kind of get this work done meant that we were reviewing every single alarm and they were looking at them. It's easier just not to import them. <laughs> it's easier to go, this alarm isn't actually very valuable, so let's just drop it. So we actually filtered out a load of alarms or, got, or just got rid of them because each one we were looking at them and uh, having kind of a more historical perspective uh, on whether the alarms are useful because you know, it's really easy to create an alarm. If something goes wrong once, you create the alarm as a follow-up action, and then you never think about it again unless it goes off all the time. And it's hard to understand the value of any particular alarm. But in this case, we were giving like almost a cost to teams. Like, you're going to have to do a bit of work and write a runbook for this thing. So, you know, you're only going to do that when it's valuable. So that process itself got rid of a, a lot of alarms. And, and so we started off with a base of a smaller set of alarms with a well-defined uh, requirements around the quality and things like runbooks associated with every single alarm. And then we just applied continuous improvement to that. So uh, a monthly review effectively of every single paging alarm that uh, we open a issue for absolutely every single alarm. It's at the highest priority. Uh, we, then teams were actually pretty responsive, uh, extremely responsive to doing work to make sure that people weren't getting paged. So it was like some sort of weird social, <laughs> social thing happening with humans because you feel, it seems like people felt less bad about paging people on their own team. Whereas if you're paging people who you don't know uh, are like are, are miles away, uh, you feel worse about that because, I don't know, it's like maybe it's because you see the people that stand up every day and you all kind of own that stuff together. It's like, it's okay if you page each other. Um, but yeah, those, uh, we found that teams were very responsive. There was almost like a shame aspect. Not that we were shaming people but people felt like they didn't want the uncle the volunteer team to be burdened with with unnecessary pages for their own stuff and so uh the mix of like uh, consistently following up on every single alarm then maybe the social pressure uh which people seem to associate with uh, with having a, a team of volunteers handle their alarms and then just good stuff like reporting like sending out monthly or quarterly newsletters on how the virtual team is going things like that and celebrating it and getting buy-in from leadership and that has meant it's been quite sustainable and we haven't had to say uh, we've no problems filling up the team in fact part of the problem is that we've got too many people who want to join the team um of of volunteers and so we have to kind of cycle people in and out and so that's it's a good problem to have and it's been the case since the creation of our virtual on-call team interesting how long prior to covid did you were you able to implement some of that did you feel like that's shifted anything with how people perceive their personal time to say volunteer for being on an on-call, assuming that on-call means that they're going to get paged in the middle of the night or something. It's COVID didn't really affect it. I think we've had it in place for two or three years. Uh, You know, if anything, it's made people are just sitting around their houses and it's easier to go on call. Um, right. so. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Just like, well, I'm not going to be out going out to the yeah. pubs or anything or drinking. So I can't go to a concert. So I might as well maybe get paid to be available, <laughs> you know, help out and stuff like that. So I could see that a little bit. But yeah, I was just curious about that. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to also dig into with you. Do you use the metaphor technical debt in your role and like the type of the teams that you're working a part of? Yeah, I think talking about what technical debt is and how valuable it is and trying to define it is definitely one of the the best sports that uh, technical people have. Um, One thing we do do, uh, which is, I think, reasonably effective, is that we try and quantify the opportunities that we have. And so we're kind of quite process-driven in a bunch of ways. We've got a few similar areas that we apply similar approaches to. So this started off many years ago uh, with security. And so we, as we started to mature and build um, a more mature security program, uh, we started writing down our security risks. And uh, this this is great because it meant that you could get them out of your head. <laughs> I mean, you could articulate uh, the risk involved and maybe the work involved in solving them and the opportunity, what what maybe getting rid of some of these risks would unlock or uh, like how grave some of the problems are. 
And this this approach of having uh, a risk register, uh, giving allowing people to surface these as problems either off the top of their head or as a uh, re, as a result of some sort of event um, and then giving visibility to leadership and to teams who may or may not want to work on it uh, on some of these issues uh, this worked really well as a tool and so we've applied the same approach to uh, cost opportunities uh, availability risks but also quality and velocity and so velocity is the, our velocity program and velocity risk register are basically our way of managing technical debt in a relatively consistent way and allowing engineers or anybody to to raise problems uh, which we believe is slowing us down. And so that's very specifically why we're calling it velocity. And the the, the intake process here is that uh, it's it's pretty much a, a short document, a write-up of the problem, the opportunity, the risk that this is uh, causing to us, uh, how often we kind of run into this problem and what the, the real consequences are for teams. Uh, in some cases, there's a clear owner, there's one team that kind of owns these things. In other cases, we have to try and find them. And so, uh, but some of the time, we may or may not just do the work. You know, we we try and shape the problem. We try and figure out what the what the uh, impact is, uh, rate that against the amount of work involved, and then try and do the most impactful work. And so that's ultimately what we're trying to do in the various risk registers and the various kind of program management approach uh, to these things. We want to do the most impactful work to our organization so that we spend the least amount of time with this stuff to, so we can build product. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, it's not that all technical debt work has to go through this velocity program. Uh, it's very often for teams to just own uh, something in their own space and they're getting blocked by it. They're, they can go and fix that. That's fine. But this allows for maybe cross-team collaboration or maybe the project is so big that it's going to be a, a substantial in terms of the team themselves having to push off other product work or other deliverables to get this thing done. And so it gives a ways of justifying the work of showing, giving visibility to leadership and in getting it signed off. And the, the thing about these programs is that they all feed into our regular planning cycle. They, they're inputs into how we build software normally. So it's not like we're trying to get people to clean up technical debt in, in, the, in the corners of when people have got some spare time or anything like that. It's just real work that we prioritise based on impact. Uh, and it's one input into Teams roadmaps and the the team, the work that teams choose to do, and we've uh, we've had, I think, good outputs. It's it's we've definitely uh, unblocked maybe some features or uh, improved uh, various things like things like deployment times, reliability, you know, all these kind of things. And it's not the case that we're always looking to like completely remove these velocity risks, even getting them from being what we would quantify as being like a high risk down to a medium risk. Uh, that can be pretty significant in terms of improving the quality of, of our lives here. So a lot of the time it's about mitigation and not complete destruction <laughs> of the problem. Um, and, uh, you know, we get to track progress against this over time and celebrate the work and uh, all those kind of good positive things of when we do actually make improvements in this space. Nice. I know that you know you, you're talking about the de de deployment process, and I know that uh, get a little bit more behind the scenes on Intercom's delivery process. I know that you deploy a lot. What does a lot mean in Intercom? Is that multiple times a day, week, hour? Sure, it's it's probably hundreds of times a week. Um, so it can be. Uh, I'd say dozens a day to our main uh, Ruby on Rails monolith. We also have another large application, which is our Ember uh, JS uh, front-end application. Uh, that is the, the Intercom app that people use uh, to support their customers. It's a relatively large application and people spend a lot of, uh, our engineers spend a lot of time uh, working on it. So that would also probably see dozens of deployments a day, depending on what's been built. And then we've got a, a long tail of uh of applications, things like our, we've got a, a Ruby on Rails app that does billing. Uh, we've got an application which takes care of some integrations and they might have dozens a week, I guess, of deployments. Uh, but the, the main thing is the, the Intercom Rails application, it goes out to uh, well over a thousand hosts uh, across uh, hundreds of auto scaling groups in EC2. So it's not just that it uh, goes out a lot. It goes out a lot to a lot of places. <laughs> um, and it's got a fair amount of complexity and, and scar tissue and stuff built up in it to make it really, really safe to get out there, to get it, uh, to get it out there fast and to get it out there so that 
our problems uh, don't disrupt customers and we don't have latency spikes, all that kind of stuff. Anecdotally, or maybe you actually have real numbers there, you probably do actually. Uh, when when something push, gets pushed into the main branch, is ready to deploy, or however that process looks like, approximately how long does it take for all of your users to, to have that version of the application out in front of them? Yeah, today it's about 10 to 15 minutes from a merge to master to that code being like being used exclusively by our end end user customers. It hasn't always been this good, so it, it, things have kind of gone up and down <laughs> over time. Um, we I, a few months ago we worked on uh, the problem with our deplo- deployment tool, or rather our deployment process. Uh, so the the history of the tool that we use for the process is that this tool started off in like 2012, very early on in Intercom's um, history. Uh, and was written to allow us to move off Heroku and to start utilizing AWS infrastructure to to get uh, Intercom um, working well inside of AWS. And so the applic- this deployment application, it's a small Ruby on Rails application, it's been maintained on and off by different engineers, different teams, and it used to do a lot more stuff. It used to do a lot of infrastructure management. Uh, but over time, we've kind of taken stuff out we've, as we've gotten, as we've grown up a little, and um, we now use infrastructure as code tools like Terraform to kind of define our infrastructure a bit more. And so we've made it less authoritative for our infrastructure. But at the same time, we've wanted to make things safer and we wanted to make things uh, work in lots of different types of environments. So, for example, uh, the tool can now deploy across multiple AWS accounts and it can deploy across multiple AWS regions. And we've got lots of uh, the ability to configure lots of smoke tests at different stages to make things safe so that uh, when we do have a problem or we do see an opportunity to improve the safety of our deployments, we've got the ability to kind of do all this stuff. We ended up in a situation of where our deployments end-to-end were taking about 30 to 35 minutes. And there was no one thing that caused this. It was like the slow growth of the amount of hosts and the amount of auto-scaling groups it was uh, deploying to. The, the, the sheer volume of uh, auto-scaling groups itself was causing problems that AWS were rate-limiting a bunch of our calls to them um, on, on multiple levels. Uh, we replaced direct SSH access with uh, for to kick off the deployments from this tool to our hosts to an AWS service called Systems Manager. And that itself was kind of rate-limiting us as well. So we were... And we added more safety checks. So we had a, a we have a canary stage that we call production system test. That you know we we've we had a staging environment, but as with every staging environment in the world, it wasn't very useful and didn't give us that much protection. Uh, and so this production system test canary stage gave gives a strong protection, like it's running. It's, it is it's a dedicated fleet of our production hosts running production against our production databases and production data. And so we ended up adding a load of checks and um, safety checks in in there before we released the code to the rest of our production environment. So all of these things, just like the proverbial frog in the boiling water, just slowed us down, and we didn't really notice and. Uh, you know, we just started looking at the deployment times and going. Thirty minutes actually is not great because uh, it's it's not enough to like merge the master and then code hit production without you going off and doing something else. It's it's not in that kind of magical time of where you're not going to get distracted. Like thirty minutes is like that's a whole meeting. <laughs> you know, you could go off and getting context back is hard. So we decided that we wanted to get it back down to 10, 15 minutes. Um, pretty arbitrary goal, but uh, when we started looking at where the time was getting added on, there was no one thing. It was all of those kind of components I was talking about, as well as our CI, CD setup, had just kind of bloated or just added on bits of time individually. And when we started thinking about what we should do with this tool, like this is a pretty old tool, like maybe we should, and we don't want to be running... Be, be great at this deployment software. It's not our core business. Maybe we should start replacing this with some third-party offering or use AWS's code deploy service. And these are all kind of reasonable approaches to, to improving our setup here. Um, but when we looked a little deeper <laughs> and we started looking at the, where the opportunities were, uh, I, th- I think there was a lot to be said for just taking 
making sure we could measure the problem well and then iterating on each of the individual things that we could identify. So we, we, it was it sounds boring, but we took the problem, we started iterating on it, we would measure, we would improve something. And then we kept at that for basically a few months. And we got it down uh, between doing things like improving improving things so we weren't rate limited so much by AWS. One of the things we did was just ask AWS for greater rate limits on the uh, on the systems manager service. And they said, sure. Uh, so that actually worked out uh, really well. We got like, that's shaved off two or three minutes on its own. Um, we reordered how we did tests. We made our pipelines um, parallelized rather than just static kind of pipelines. And between all those things, we managed to get our deployments they're probably the P50, I think, is probably in the order of like 10, 11 minutes now. But if everything goes well, we can be down at nine minutes. Uh, you know, we want to stay there because that is definitely in the kind of magic zone of getting code out there where to uh, customers and doing it in the same, uh, it really the same mode of work without getting distracted, having to go off and do something else. You can uh, hit merge. And then pretty soon after that, like within five, six minutes, it's starting to hit production. And then a couple of minutes later, it's done. Uh, and so, so that does speed up, you know, the day-to-day uh, work that every engineer is doing intercom, which is great, but also gives us uh, the ability to respond faster to availability problems, security problems, all these kind of things where you just at times want to get something onto the, the host to fix something. And then we can just do it way faster without having to do all sorts of bypassing our pro- our regular processes and stuff like that. Nice. You're talking about, you know, that that time there and the, kind of so reading between the lines there around maybe an engineer has worked on some work on something, gets merged within their team or whatever, and then it goes to the, the, the pipeline and gets deployed. So their, their understanding of when I'm done with the task or the ticket or the feature that I'm working on is when it's in production. And I can confirm that it's like, is that, do you have a shared definition of done on that? Versus I know that I've talked to some people where like the developers feel like they're kind of farly, far removed, like they're working on things, they get, it gets put into a queue of things they're going to go out with their sprint or something. And then it's like batched, pushed out, and then they're already working on a couple of other things already. And then that context switching thing, you're like, oh, something went wrong in production. And you're like, ah, oh, what was what was that like a week ago that I was doing? It doesn't sound like that's something that Intercom needs to deal with because they're more closely connected to pushing stuff out on like multiple times a day, it sounds like. so. Yeah, totally. Like we believe that building in short, quick, fast iterations and shipping the smallest piece of code to production uh, is uh, the best way to build high quality product. So fast feedback loops between uh, seeing what you're what, what you're building something and then see, seeing its actual use in production. Uh, that's the one of like the most powerful way or one of the most powerful ways of building high quality product uh, efficiently and fast. So we uh, you know we use other techniques as well, things like feature flags and uh, to to make sure that we can get code out there and the iterations are fast and that we can safely kind of learn from how we do things. But it's not a coincidence that we've ended up with this fast deployment system. It's it's part of what we believe builds great product. Um, and it's not just the engineering side, but also we want to build features at all stages from like the learning for about what the product does, about learning about how the how the design performs in the real world, we apply the same methodology to there. It's small changes, out fast, get feedback fast, learn fast, and overall move fast and then not have to pay that cost, like you said, of context switching back into, oh, what was that thing I shipped a week ago? <laughs> like that's uh, that's expensive and hard and lead, leads naturally to kind of processes and a lot of uh, stuff having to be shared to to get good at that kind of uh, way of building software but we don't we don't have to be like that we we pride ourselves on uh, shipping being our heartbeat uh, and it's what we think is uh, really important for uh, probably most product oriented companies to be in but especially for uh, a company like intercom that has this real-time messenger where you can just talk to your customers and fix things for them in re- real time as a result of getting uh, of having these deployment pipelines available We'll be back with our interview with Brian in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone that I should interview on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and introduce yourself and or make a recommendation. And now, let's get back to our interview with Brian Scanlon. 
How does your team go about considering, say, new technology platforms and or tooling? So I mentioned that we are conservative and this is literally one of our values. So we have uh, engineering values that try and shape and guide our work. And uh, the thing about these values is uh, we didn't just create them in some sort of ivory tower and um, you know, come come down from the mountain and and tell our engineering organization uh, this is the way to build. I think it's at times coming up with uh, these kind of principles and, and ways to, to build things. It's more like being a linguist. Like li- linguists don't s- sit around writing the rules for languages or write, inventing new languages a lot. It's more like observing what works in the real world and then trying to figure out ways of describing those or, or like figuring out the rules uh, from what you see out there. And so I think the same is it's kind of uh, applies to how we think about the engineering values. What we observe is that projects and teams and uh, things that we build that are uh, using conservative uh, approaches to, to to technology, uh, they tend to work out better. They work out better partially because we can go on call for them easier. Um, it's easier to to shift them around the, the company or, or get new people to work on them uh, at a later stage. So uh, being technically conservative uh, has meant that in practice, what we do is we've got a list of core software and these are the core software is a list of approaches and tools uh, that are uncontroversial to use in Intercom. Like we've got good history around them. Uh, we use a lot of, say, MySQL, and we uh, have a team who spends uh, a good bit of their time making sure that our MySQL platform is excellent. It's not that I've got bad things to say about Postgres or uh, Oracle or anything. These are fantastic databases that have their places. But MySQL works really well for us because we've invested in it. We know how to run it. Uh, we've spent time in it. And we get more out of whatever we invest more in, in making sure that our MySQL platform just works. And so to get engineers away from having to think about every aspect of their service, uh, the technically conservative approach is to use a well-supported, already in-use uh, technology like MySQL in the Ruby on Rails monolith that's well-worn and uh, that building using these tools by default is like the way that uh, we do the vast majority of our, of our engineering. Now, of course, there are times when we want to, when you pretty much have to use new stuff. There are new types of problems, new classes of problems. Um, a good example might be some of the uh, machine learning uh technologies that we've built into the Intercom product over the last few years. We certainly don't build that on top of Ruby on Rails and MySQL. Uh, we ended up going with uh, using Python for a bunch of the data crunching, um, simply because the the libraries and the support and uh, the ability to move fast in, in those tools uh, just greatly outstripped uh, what you could do in Ruby on Rails or even like a third-party service at the time when we were building this stuff. We're definitely cautious about it. We've almost got like a traffic light system in the core software thing. There's like things that we, various technologies that there might be in using Intercom, but we would say, you know, you probably want to chat with somebody about this before you start to use it. Uh, You only really want to use it in certain certain circumstances. Python being a good example of that where um, our machine learning and data engineering teams might use it because they use a lot of airflow and, and different things like that. Then there's also a few technologies that we advise people just to don't go near at all. <laughs> um, so, you know, an example of this would be uh, we're big users of AWS. We've been there uh, since 2012 or so. And to go into another cloud at the moment would, uh, you know, it's a way of solving problems, but it's not some, it's not the way that we would uh, go about uh, building stuff at Intercom because we've got so much history and context and uh uh, just the ability to execute inside of AWS for a product team to decide to build something on Google Cloud would would require like a lot of oversight and a good deal of convincing to to get that done. So what we see in practice is people end up building with core software, and we really only look at building the the essential parts of any kind of new product or anything uh, that are really required for that. We just released a couple of new products uh, or features yesterday. One of them, Conversational Insights. We, When we did the, re- the architecture review and the operational readiness review of this stuff, the vast, vast, vast majority of the stuff that powers this, the new feature, it's all the same stuff that we use elsewhere. It's all asynchronous queues. We've got these type of fan out workers. We've got other types of workers. And the, the novel stuff that was introduced for this feature was pretty much just a new 
a visualization library <laughs> that built on top of D3 for this new type of uh, way of visualizing the, the to topics in the Intercom application. And a new way of doing chronological or reverse chronological updates to some data sets so that the UX of playing around with these topics in the conversational in uh, insights UI meant that you could see the results of your work applied to the most recent conversations. So these two uh, things were like pretty essential to what makes this product a really good product. But every all of the rest of the components are pretty much regular intercom building blocks. And so we try to avoid uh, br bringing in new solutions, uh, which could work more efficiently. They could like solve the specific problem uh, and be like more suitable than trying to use the basic building blocks we got. Uh, but what we find is this approach works well for us sustainably over years and years and years. That means that we got uh, just so much experience of knocking out great features with, with these approaches over time. It's, it's in a way, it sounds like your kind of core software and these platforms you, you have experience with, it's it's kind of a set of conventions or constraints for your team to work try to work within as best to their ability and then propose if they're going to try to go outside of that or something, at least having like a process to how to do that. Because definitely talk to a lot of teams where every team that had a new thing, like, well, we're going to experiment with this new thing because we're really excited about this new JavaScript framework or whatever at the time. And and then years later, they're like, okay, so we need a lot of polyglot developers that can work on any these different systems. And, well, that one's way different than this one over here. And, like, I don't really understand. And that sounds very much the opposite of the type of thing that Intercom has been trying to go for. We're even just thinking about, like, your on-call team can work pretty much across everything, you know, to some degree with with, with their with their experience level that they have or the, or the technology stacks that they're working at. Do you feel like that has has had any impact on employee, say, engagement and or retention when like, if they're thinking about their own resume? Like Ruby on Rails is this old platform now, you know, I'm kind of air quoting that, having been around the community for a really long time myself as well. But it's just like the, it's not the new hot thing to slap on your resume. But Intercom has a growing and sustainable business. And so it's, how do you kind of align that or does it even not really seem to be an issue there? I think it is a real thing. One of one of the ways we think about it is that software engineers, we the title that we give them is like product engineer. So we don't hire engineers to uh, write code <laughs> or like write software. We write we hire people to build product, and the entire way that we build our software, the way we think about software, the the, the and we think about why we're building things. We're spend a lot of time being quite thoughtful about this stuff and really optimizing it for the production of product. And so everything down to like our job titles, to the job specs, to how the things that we look out for in interview loops, all the way to like evaluating employee performance, uh, what work we celebrate, all of that. It's really geared towards building product, like getting stuff into people's hands that they use and doing all the hard work that you need to do on like the talking to customers, understanding feedback, get, getting it out there into production, sweating the details. That's all the stuff that we celebrate and uh, reward and uh, want to see. And we, so we want to see people like we grow people and uh, bring people in who want to do that job more so than be a polyglot engineer. It's just you're not going to get that type of experience um, in Intercom. Uh, I do see it in my own area. So on the system side, we're not using Kubernetes. We're not using a lot of the cool stuff <laughs> that's out there um, and a lot of the innovative stuff that's maybe in the cloud and uh, that you do see a lot of um, people being attracted towards that kind of stuff and wanting to try it out. And and so I do feel like this probably had a bit of a factor in maybe uh, certain engineer shapes like people who want to go like really really deep into particular areas maybe might have that the need for that expertise um on the database side for example we trend we tend to try and uh outsource as much to aws and we there's only so deep we want to go with that stuff um and so if someone wants to get really really deep on that side they're probably better off going somewhere that runs their own mysql and uh that can kind of give that like deeper more subject matter expertise work to them so we have seen that from time to time but it's really all about setting up our engineering culture and how we value things and kind of directing people to like really look at the value they're bringing to Intercom, making sure that the product development part is like the most important thing that people are geared towards and incentivized to have great outcomes for. And 
uh, once you got that in place, the fact that we're not getting to play with a lot of different databases or, or cool languages or whatever, it kind of mitigates that to a certain extent. Thanks for, thanks for sharing some background on that. I'm always curious about what kind of happens behind the scenes in different organizations. You know, we were talking about tooling and such, and there's a lot of third-party tooling available today. Do you think it is more or less complicated to maintain, maintain software now than it was, say, 10 to 20 years ago? It can be harder to make decisions <laughs> because there's so much choice at times. Um, an area that I've been spending a bit of time looking at recently is uh, Intercom's use of different observability tools. And if you look at the marketplace, what's available out there, the features that various tools like Datadog and Honeycomb and Lightstep and the likes have been getting, like they're they're amazing. Some of the tools as well just have less distinctive features these days. You know, we you can start sending high cardinality data to lots of different setups. Uh, even like niche monitoring providers, say like Vivacortex, are just replaced with like out of the box stuff from AWS these days. You've got a huge, like amazing choice out there. So it can be hard to figure out like which monitoring provider do we use or which metrics or observability approach do we have? Um, that used to be an easy question to answer because uh, you, you would roll your own with Graphite or you'll go with New Relic for APM and there was a bit of CloudWatch on the side. But now I think there's so much choice out there that it can be hard to figure out like what what is a great stack or if it's worth investing in hooking up, say, an observability tool to your product or stack and getting it working really well, whether that work is worth it given how fast um, the the space is moving. So, you know, we've got probably a problem of the the luxury of riches. So like there's so so many great tools, so many good approaches. Uh, and when I see like when I think about things like observability or infrastructure as code or how to manage your Lambda process, uh, Lambda configuration and in, in AWS, um, part of our problem is trying to figure out which which is the best tool with the least risk to us, uh, but also like it, we might get cho- choosing that, uh, choosing any given tool compared to uh, a, a lot of other tools which are very, very similar or have other good features can be pretty difficult these days. Yeah, I can imagine that. I know that I think early 10, 15 years ago, it always felt like, well, what were some of the other people that you knew in the industry were using? And you can kind of lean on that a little bit. And now it seems like there's so much out there. It's hard to like, I don't, have any experience really with Kubernetes, but I've had a lot of guests talk about it. I'm like, I don't really understand what it does. Um, just open confession. I don't have time to go learn everything, right? And it doesn't seem to be a thing that needs to impact the types of work that I, my team works on. So I haven't needed to dig that deep into it. Having said that, so a um, couple of quick last questions with you as well. So in, in terms of, you know, you've talked a lot about how your team will manage, say, technical debt or velocity. I forgot the way you phrased that. It was uh, whatever is hindering velocity or one of the things that software developers sometimes struggle with is like, well, there's this pain point I'm experiencing, but it's going to take well, take me a while to go somewhere else and create a document or go create a ticket in our ticketing system to say, raise this and document this as technical debt because I'm just going to deal with this pain point every time I'm here because it's only 10 minutes each time. How do you get them to get past that to be like, no, take the time to go to go write that up or raise it with your team so that you can remind yourself later on to raise that with whomever else that needs to get raised with so that it's just not kind of like buried in their own and then they grumble about it and just keep moving on with their their work. Yeah, that that's a hard problem. I think there's two things we've done that definitely don't solve but can vaguely help. <laughs> um, one is to treat internal tools like a product. Uh, so I was chatting with an engineer yes, uh, recently who was working on our internal log processing system, log, log processing and search system. And uh, we're kind of thinking about what to do next with it, where, where to invest in it, and uh, how it kind of fits in with other observability tools, things like that. And the question or the thing I asked him to go off and do was like, let's figure out who uses this and for what. And to like go into the access logs, like pull out, like do data analysis, do the stuff that if you're a product manager looking at the utilization of your product, uh, you'd be doing this kind of stuff, like getting data about what's actually going on, what are they using it for, what are those use cases? And then, uh, you know, describe them as jobs. Like these, these people are doing these jobs to be done on our internal logs platform. Uh, how, how are do we know if this is actually a good solution or are there different solutions and uh, how, how do we get good at understanding these things? So that's one way of doing it, of like doing a product job basically on your internal tools allows you to or forces you to discover through mix of you know analytical, quantitative, 
and quantitative and qualitative data, go and talk to the people of what they're actually trying to do and and see how they're used. And so if you've got strong ownership of a certain area or you decide to kind of work on it, that's a good approach. Um, the other thing that we do regularly, especially, uh, and it's pretty valuable to teams who end up working on backend tools for things like deployments and developer productivity, is to send them out a team, like to get them away from just spending all their time writing these tools all day and get them building product using the tools that they support. And so we and we also staff the, these teams typically with engineers from elsewhere in the company. So we don't. Uh, necessarily hire, hire directly into developer productivity. We'll get some engineers who, product engineers who are building products and then have an interest in contributing and owning uh, some of our internal tooling. So um, so one of the features of Intercom that we use internally is that uh, is uh, people going on tours or engineers going on tours between different teams. So it's part of our onboarding process, but it's also uh, very, very common for people uh, just to move out of their team for a few weeks, go and help out in a project or pick up a piece of work. Maybe they want to learn a bit more about a certain area or there's like a, sh- a shortfall in engineering resources in a team or whatever. We'll use these temporary tours um, quite regularly to to help uh, not just uh, fill in like gaps organization, but help people grow and uh, contribute uh, more broadly and learn uh, different parts of Intercom. So that that can help a lot as well with tools teams or people who uh, own tools or processes. It's great to discover how they're used by using them yourself or sitting beside people who are using the things and then get annoyed when you, like, you're, it takes you 10 minutes to do the thing all the time and figure out there's a way to like, uh, we need to improve this uh, and not have this re- re- repetitive work. Um, at other times, uh, you know, I, I personally, I, I love finding out these problems and just going kind of fixing them. Uh, I, uh, we've we've done kind of some uh, semi-formal pieces of work, uh, especially for our support teams and uh, our support engineers who are living kind of on the outskirts of our application. They might be using some tools that are put together for internal purposes. Um, and, you know, they're just typically not as well polished as our external facing tools. Um, and there's big improvements that once you start paying a bit of attention to them, get a bit of feedback from our support teams, our support engineers who are using these tools all the time, you can make great improvements very rapidly a lot of the time or remove the need for them to be in these tools or make things self-service for customers or whatever. Um, so we've we've done a bit of this. I think we're probably going to get better at it. It's, it was an area that was identified over the last year or so that's uh, getting better at providing our own internal tooling um, and yeah, trying trying to make ways and mechanisms of like surfacing risks up and uh, barriers to like internal productivity as opposed to like day-to-day engineer velocity. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. So let's imagine that there's um, someone listening, hopefully for my own sake, and I'm not just having conversations for nobody, but someone out there is listening right now and they're part of a team where they don't they aren't feeling like some of their concerns about dealing with some of those like these friction points, things that are slowing down the team. And maybe they've asked product team, like, hey, can we get some time to do this in the near future? And they've heard, not right now, maybe later, maybe a few too many times, and they're starting to translate that in their head as never, or like this company's never going to value that. And I'm going to stop asking, because if they don't care, why should I care anymore? What advice could you offer them on how to like reapproach that topic in conversation with their team and or the product team? It's a tough one. It's a tough one because it's hard to see when it happens because people are selecting out of, you know, I guess going through the regular <laughs> mechanisms like raising a trouble ticket or whatever. We do try to encourage and celebrate this, like p- people coming out with like suggested improvements uh, internally. And 
can be hard to put in like a heavyweight process or like it can feel like a lot of work to have like a heavyweight heavyweight process you gotta just have to have a culture of like smaller wins and uh do it like it, it's uh like doing these smaller pieces of work kind of continually and make make sure that things don't escalate into large larger kind of pieces of things and so i think like having slack to be able to do pick up uh like faster pieces of work responding to like problems that are raised internally and that i think that that can kind of help as well rather than everything having to be completely justified by a giant four-page document and uh, you know uh fully listed uh dates and times when things were problems or whatever um so like a, a collaborative environment where there's respect between uh, peers and where we don't have combative um processes in place for getting teams to do things and allowing like engineers to kind of own uh, the areas that they, they work on and having some space to kind of make them better in the way they want. I think that kind of is how we try to avoid those things. Thanks for thanks for providing some advice and or at least kind of ruminating on that a bit for our audience. So last few questions. What non-software, I can see in your background right now, you've got a bunch of O'Reilly books, nicely color organized. So aside from those types of books that are, say, software, technical related. Is there a book that you find yourself recommending to people on your team on a regular basis? Uh, I've recommended a book a few times recently. And so I'm going to mention a psychology book that's used a lot in counselling. And I think it's particularly relevant over the last year. I think everybody's been dealing with very changed lives <laughs> due to uh, the pandemic at the moment. Um, and so the book is called uh, Choice Theory by William Glasser. And uh, one of the main points of the book is that behaviour is driven from uh, inside, like regardless of external influences. And uh, the choice thing is like we're all in control of our own choices and behaviours are our own choices. And so the book effectively rejects that outside influence is what causes your uh, behaviours. You are choosing to do them. Now, there's, you know, there's five needs that we all have. or uh, that, And some of these are definitely been challenged by the pandemic. Uh, and though the book is mostly about relationships because their influence on us and uh, our behaviours is is very large, but I've found it useful to kind of apply some of the same axioms to the my, my personal response to uh, our changed existence due to the pandemic and uh, through focusing on how I choose to act and think as opposed to um, just getting bummed, listening to the news and reading what's going on and, you know, not being able to control those things. So I found that a framework uh, useful and I'm not particularly read in that area. I'm not knowledgeable. Uh, there might might be a lot better material out there, um, but I found it useful enough for me to personally recommend recently a few times. And so uh, I think it might be useful to some of the listeners in the podcast too. Excellent. Definitely. I'll, I'll include a uh, link to that in the show notes for everybody. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development and, and DevOps and all these fun topics? Sure. Um, I've got a Twitter account at Brian underscore Scanlon, and I post some software-y type stuff up there. There's some nonsense as well. Every so often I'll appear on the Intercom blog. Um, so I've had uh, a recent article about uh, advice for startups. So there's some stuff up there and there might be some future articles I'm working on as well. Uh, and that's pretty much where I am on the internet. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Brian. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. It's been great. Thanks so much. 